Good morning, everybody. Welcome to November 30th, the day before it all begins, right? I'm Mark Dickman. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad you're here. If you are just visiting, we are glad you're here. A couple of bits of orientation for you. We've got locally roasted coffee from our buddy Tony Santoro with Enderly Coffee. It is served proudly in the coffee room over there. If you've had too much locally roasted goodness from Tony Santoro, relief is on the other side of that wall. And if you have not, are you drinking hot chocolate? Is there, there is also hot chocolate in that room as well, so if we can entice you with that. Uh, please take advantage of our art gallery as well. We have a new exhibit in our gallery, which is just in this corner here. Please take your time to stroll through that gallery. There's lots of amazing art created by kids here at Warehouse, local artists here in Charlotte, and even artists around the world. That's a fundraising exhibit for Warehouse in Africa, and you'll be hearing more about plans for Warehouse in Africa Chapter 3 in the weeks ahead. So please take advantage of the uh, gallery space. All the exhibits that do not have a dot on their little tag are still for sale. There's some digital prints as well. And if you would like to add something to your home collection, just email us at art at warehouse242.org and we can set you up with some beautiful art. So our Advent series is called Long Shadow. The Long Shadow is a 30-year study on the socioeconomic mobility of underprivileged children in Baltimore. It was led by Carl Alexander and two of his colleagues at John Hopkins University. And it began by tracking with 800 children when they were in elementary school as, and then they, as they moved through high school and into the workforce. Repeated interviews with these children and with their parents and with their teachers. And the big question of the study was this. Are children whose parents rank low on a socioeconomic scale, are they likely to move up on that scale? And the overwhelming answer of the study is no. 33 of the 800 children moved from low to high income brackets. 4% of the children completed a bachelor degree. In other words, the gist of the study is if you're born into a, a low socioeconomic reality, upward mobility is highly unlikely. And the quote from the opening pages of their book, a family's resources and the doors they open cast a long shadow over children's life trajectories, personal and academic at the start, and extending later to prospects for achieving success in adulthood. So based on this study and others like it that are cropping up, Many people have, begin, have begun to challenge this rhetoric of equal opportunity in our country. Uh, this is rhetoric that's alive and well. You might think of Obama's second inaugural address, where he says, We are true to our creed when a little girl born in the bleakest poverty knows that she has the same chance to succeed as anybody else because she is an American. She is free and she is equal, not just in the eyes of God, but also our own. Now, everyone is equal in the eyes of God. Absolutely. Everyone has equal, equal opportunity to succeed. It just doesn't seem to square with reality. And Exhibit A is our own city of Charlotte, as Mark mentioned. So among our nation's 50 largest metropolitan areas, Charlotte ranks dead last 
when it comes to prospect of social and economic mobility. And it's based on the likelihood that the lowest 20% would, children who are born to parents who are in the lowest 20% bracket would move to the highest 20% bracket. So we're dead last among 50 out of the 100 largest metropolitan areas, we rank 97. Why? I mean, it's, it's extremely complicated and messy. Contributing factors are education, school systems, family structures, inequality, health, social capital, and on and on. So Charlotte is just one example for why the economist Joseph Stiglitz has called equal opportunity our national myth. He wrote an article about it where he says there's actually this huge gap between aspiration and reality. And that's certainly true for social economic mobility, but that phrase applies really well to other areas of life, too. To our longing, our aspiration for whole self transformation. So not just socioeconomic, but relational and spiritual and emotional and intellectual transformation. We have an aspiration for it, and yet we struggle in an ongoing way to actually experience that transformation. So there's a shadow that falls between the aspiration and the reality. And when it comes to the transformation that we long for in this journey of following Jesus, the struggle here, it's real and it's ongoing. Paul, one of the foremost leaders of the first century church, he wrote a letter to the church in Rome where he was really honest about this struggle and he openly admits it in chapter 7 where he says, I have this desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but instead the evil that I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. What Paul is getting at in this section of Romans is that even though you can experience deliverance from bondage and from sin by belonging to Jesus, sin and brokenness continues to cast a long shadow because of ongoing evil desires, because of ongoing temptations. So we continue to struggle with that long shadow of selfishness, the long shadow of self-centeredness, the long shadow of evil desires. And that is actually directly connected to why poverty continues to cast a long shadow for many people. Because the different layers of brokenness is like a web and they're all connected. And the long shadow of, of sin individually, socially, impacts the long shadow of poverty. And they're all connected. And it's that shadow that falls in between the aspiration and the reality that makes movement difficult, that makes transformation such a struggle. And it's exactly what T.S. Eliot was getting at in, in his poem, The Hollow Men. I don't have time to read the whole poem. It's exquisite. Um, Eliot wrote it in 1925 before he converted to Christianity. And it has hints of, of that conversion. But I want you to hear at least the majority of the last stanza. So how the poem ends, because it connects directly into our theme. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow, for thine is the kingdom. 
Between the conception and the creation, between the emotion and the response, falls the shadow. Life is very long. Between the desire and the spasm, between the potency and the existence, between the essence and the descent, falls the shadow. For thine is the kingdom. For thine is, life is, for thine is the, this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. For thine is the kingdom. It's a a little fragment of the prayer that Jesus taught his followers when he was with them. And the prayer itself ends, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And critics have gone back and forth of why Eliot included that little fragment because in general this, this poem is very, very dark. It's not a Christian poem in any sense of the word. So why this little fragment? And some have suggested that, so just as the shadow falls between everything, between the aspiration and the reality, so the shadow falls before you can complete any prayer. So the hollow men are only capable of these half-uttered, half-energetic kind of prayers. For thine is the... But other critics have suggested this is actually a reference to the answer that Eliot is longing for. Because this is just about six months prior to his, his full conversion to Christianity. If in between everything there falls a shadow, then maybe the answer is for God to arrive and rip us out of the shadow. Destroy the shadow. Get rid of it. Uh, and I think, I like to think that both of those readings are something about what's going on here with Eliot. He's, he's recognizing that life takes place in this long shadow. This is, this is a reality. But he's longing for God to arrive so that life doesn't have to end with a whimper. And the next poem that Eliot wrote was Ash Wednesday. Advent is the season of waiting for God's arrival. A season of remembering that God is actually in the business of arriving. That is his story. That is what he does. Whether we notice that arrival or not, or whether we always respond appropriately to that arrival or not, that God is in the business of showing up. And in fact, from a Christian perspective, all of history is this story of God arriving, of God entering and exiting the the stage of of human life and human history. And the Bible is where we get to know that story. The Bible tells about these entrances and about these exits and God's arrivals and his comings and goings. And it shows that when God arrives, it's not always at the time and certainly not in the way that a lot of people expected him to arrive. And so we, we see these stories of God arriving and people hiding. Or God arriving and people laughing. Or God arriving and people wrestling with him. God arriving and people fighting and crying. And God arriving and people responding with joy and with humility. But that's not the majority. It's not the majority because when God arrives, his purpose is to pull us out of the long shadow. And you would think that would be the best thing ever. But yet there's all kinds of things that complicate it and we don't often experience it that way because, well, for one reason, we don't always know that we're in a shadow. 
we don't see it. We're, we're blind. We don't know that there's a better, brighter, more beautiful world out there that we could even experience. Other times, it's because we, we kind of like our shadow. Or at least that's what we tell people. We, um, we know it's dark, but it's what we know. It's comfortable. It's the way things are, and changing that would be scary. Uh, and then there's other times, I think, because getting, we know that getting pulled out of that shadow would hurt a lot. I mean, like going from a really dark, completely pitch black room into sunlight and kind of the ache of that and the pain of getting adjusted. We don't want to go through that. Um, and we don't trust that that process that would include pain perhaps would be good for us. So there's a lot of stories like this in the Bible, the majority of them. And I want to tell one of them today and then in the weeks to come tell more as we reflect on how we would respond to God's arrival. Maybe how we have in the past, how you want to respond this Advent season, and to ponder and to reflect on if you are willing to let God pull you out of uh, your shadow. So the story I'm going to focus on today is from the beginning of the Bible, it's Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis 3 as a whole is telling the story of how the long shadow entered human existence to begin with how it all began. I'm going to begin when these first two human beings, Adam and Eve, instead of listening to God's words and, and being attentive to his desires, listened to God's enemy and listened to their own desires and the consequences of that. Now God had originally placed Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden. He's given them the task of taking care of everything, of enjoying the, the fruit of the garden, of enjoying these harmonious relationships that Adam and Eve had with, with God, with each other, with the rest of creation, just the way things were supposed to be. Um, and in the midst of all that, God said, there's one thing you may not do, you may not eat from, or you may not even touch, this tree that's in the middle of the garden. It doesn't say why, it just says, don't, don't do that. And if you do, you're going to die. But enter God's enemy, appearing in the story as a serpent, and he addresses Eve first. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So the serpent was definitely right about one thing, that eating this fruit opened their eyes. They were now aware in some way that they hadn't been before of good and evil. Uh, but the serpent deceived them, because here falls the shadow. The shadow has now entered the world, and because of this first act of ignoring God, this first act of listening to another voice, the shadow of death is cast over their experience, over their lives. Um, and the first experience of that shadow is shame. They hide. They, they were naked together in perfect harmony, complete openness, complete vulnerability, and all of a sudden, they're full of shame. 
And so they tie something together, make makeshift covering, and they hide from each other. Um, then they have the similar reaction when God arrives in the garden. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So just like they hid from each other, Adam and Eve now are hiding from God because they're full of shame. They didn't have a sliver of shame before, but now they know they've, they've ripped the fabric of God's designs in some way. They've disobeyed God. They haven't listened. So they're ashamed and they're, they're afraid of how God is going to interact with them. If God is going to accept them, they're afraid of just what life is going to be like. And that fear comes from their shame. And I think that the French sculptor Auguste Rodin was able to express at least Eve's shame um, in a really powerful way, much more powerful than, than I could try to describe that shame to you. It's in uh, a uh, piece called Eve After the Fall. And I think that this work expresses just the debilitating nature of shame. How it just makes you want to turn inward and not to interact with anyone else, not interact with God, not interact with people, not even interact with yourself. Just crawl into a hole. Uh, I think we all feel it or have felt it. I think we all know what this feels like and yet we have such difficulty talking about it, admitting it, um, knowing how to deal with it, finding hope in the midst of experiencing something like this. But the scholar and author Brené Brown, she gets pretty close to describing it when she calls shame the swampland of the soul. It's whatever makes you sink into the mire of your life. It's this intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that you're, you're flawed, that you're unworthy of acceptance, you're unworthy of belonging. It's a fear that you're inferior. It's a fear that you're not good enough. And that's because of something you did or something that you are or something that is, is associated with you or something that has been done to you. I mean, there, there's no end to the reasons why we feel shame, but it makes us feel exposed and it makes us feel humiliated. And the reaction is this, when everything in us wants to hide. So shame is the outline of the long shadow. It's the first expression of this brokenness. And it's the ongoing expression. It's one of the main things that makes us hide from, from ourselves, hide from each other, hide from God. And just relationships as they're meant to be, we run from that because we feel shame. And like I said before, it can be because of something you have done or something you haven't done. Or it can be because of something you are or something that you are not. Or a way that you look or what you, what you don't look like. And that's been the case for me. I was flooded with shame when my acne escalated in college. I mean, there were mornings where I didn't want to leave my dorm room. Uh, I wanted to crawl under my covers and just make the world go away. I didn't want anybody to see me. I felt ugly. I felt unlovable. And I, I just couldn't take being outside and being with people. And this, I'm probably still dealing with this, but it certainly it cast a long shadow over my personality even, over my 
relational habits over my self-image, and I'm still dealing with that. Um, still continue to struggle with the shadow of, of that. And I remember one particular incident. I, I was on a trip to Uganda with a group from, from college, and it was an awesome trip, and it was an unselfing kind of trip for me where I was able to get outside of myself and experience joy. Um, but at the end of that trip, we were in a market in Kampala where we were going around to different booths and you know, going to get some souvenirs to bring home. And I was in one particular booth looking at these souvenirs, and I, I turned my head, and like right there was former President Carter. It's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and of course, the most natural reaction as a fellow American is to step over and introduce myself to the former president. But you know what my first thought was? I don't want him to see me. I don't want him to see me because I have this massive mountain of a zit right here. So I wanted to hide from President Carter, thinking that if I would actually talk to him, all he would see is that zit, and he wouldn't actually care about talk, talking with me. Um, but I fought through that, and I introduced myself, which is a good thing. And I actually even asked the Secret Service agent to take a picture of us. Um, it's the other thing I didn't like back then, is having pictures of myself. Um, but that experience, I mean, that summarizes it for me. Um, and all of the other ways that shame had, was leading me away from doing what's natural or like what's enjoyable or beneficial and just drawing me inward. Like the swampland of my soul. I get it. And I know that you get it too. Um, and for me, what was mixed up with this is anger at God. I don't know if you've experienced that. Um, God, why did you make me like this? You know, why, why do I have to have this burden? It seems like other people can deal with it, but for whatever reason, I can't deal with this. And I just wanted God to intervene, to arrive, and take this away from me so I could be normal. That's how I felt. So I could interact like a normal human being. Um, so part of my journey of faith has been uh, wrestling with God's arrival in the person of Jesus was not to make my life easier or better. Um... Jesus' arrival is about loving and accepting me exactly who I am in all of my imperfection and in all of my feelings of shame. And we see hints of that in the Adam and Eve story. You know, we see Adam and Eve hiding from God because they're flooded with shame. They don't feel worthy to walk and talk with God anymore. They, they don't feel even worthy to be naked with each other. Um, and they're fearing what's going to happen because of that. But when God arrives, it's really beautiful. When God arrives, he doesn't get all angry right away. He, he seeks them out gently. And if you've realized that in this story before, he, he calls out to them. Uh, he starts to ask some questions. You know, where are you? What have you done? Do you want to tell me about that? And then... When he, when he hears their confession, he punishes the serpent first to deceive them, an act of grace. And he promises Adam and Eve that actually he would eventually crush that enemy. That's in the future. Now, when God drew them out of hiding, they had to deal with the consequences of their action. It's not like that wasn't a part of the picture anymore. And because now what God said was true. They now had to live under the shadow of death. God says... For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So that was the consequence. But in the midst of that, they're assured 
by this promise of God and just by the way God is interacting with them that this shadow is not their final reality. There is a bigger reality of God's love and care and promises to them that is going to see them through. And right before Adam and Eve leave the garden, because that was another consequence, there's this beautiful little line in the text that says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. I, I love that because you know, what could have happened here? God could have just booted them out and said, go make your own clothes, right? You deserve all of this. But he kind of takes them together and this is the first recorded death in the Bible. God killing some animals and using uh, their skins to provide clothing. And what he's doing, I think, is he's preparing them for the harsh world that they're going to encounter. He's saying, I want, I want you to wear these clothes and remember that I will, I'm going to protect you. I, I want to continue to love and care for you. I am for you. So I see it as an act of grace, an act of love, an act of protection, and one that required a sacrifice. So I also see here a hint of what is coming in the story, a hint that God wants to replace whatever might destroy us in the shadow with his own sacrifice, which eventually will lead to where we're going in Advent and the person of Jesus coming to provide this once and for all sacrifice that would take away entirely the curse of the long shadow. So that's what's coming uh, Brené Brown, I think she has some brilliant observation about shame um, in her book. I thought it was just me, but it isn't. Uh, it's an awesome book, and, and I, I would really recommend it to you. And I think she, more than anyone in our culture right now, really gets shame. But yet there's something in the book that falls short. Because she doesn't, in my opinion, offer what's the deepest solution to shame. The ultimate antidote to shame. The subtitle of that book is Making the Journey from What Will People Think to I Am Enough. And I think that under, underestimates the power of shame and, and the length of the long shadow. Because the fact of the matter is you will never be enough. If that is what you are chasing, you'll stay in the long shadow. And, and you won't get out from under the, the weight of shame because I am enough is not the ultimate antidote. I was talking last week about what, what is it going to take for us to really rest? I mean, genuinely, deeply rest from our work. And I mentioned how that, is, that needs to be rooted in a deep awareness that God is enough. God is enough and everything he is for you in Jesus. And the same is true here. It's not, the, the journey of following Jesus is not moving from um, what will people think to I am enough. It, it's the journey from what will people think to Jesus is enough. Jesus has provided what you need to be free from your shame. Jesus has, has won the victory over the long shadow. That's the journey of appropriating that truth and letting that sink in, that incredible reality that if God is for you in Christ, nothing can be against you, which begins to make that long shadow fade and frees you from shame so that then you're empowered by God's spirit to, to love yourself, 
So it's not that that's not a part of the picture, the I am enough part, but it comes after receiving unconditional love from God. Then you are free to love yourself, free to love God, free to love other people in full vulnerability and, and grace. So that's the journey. And given the fact that T.S. Eliot cut off Jesus' prayer, I want to complete that with you this morning. I want to read this whole prayer. I invite you to, to pray that with me. You can do that out loud if you know it, or silently, or you can just listen. And after that, we'll transition into a time of singing, and, and during that first song, we'll have an offering. My, my big desire for all of you in this Advent season is that you would experience and that you would express a deep kind of joy that comes from being embraced by a God who's enough. And then being free from the things that bind you and keep you holed up inside yourself, shame being the biggest one, and free to then love other people and love yourself and be generous. So please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, Mark. One of my most powerful experiences was when the girl that I loved, the girl that I would eventually marry, um, took my head in her hands and touched my scars and kissed them. She said, I love those. It was an awesome experience. And we're in a season where we're anticipating God's arrival, not only just to, to kiss your external stars, scars, but to take on the internal ones. That was his mission. And, and to heal them. That is what Advent is about. It's about that glorious arrival. But, you know, we're in a time in history where we are moving toward another glorious arrival as well. Uh, so for our benediction, you can stand with me, actually. For our benediction, I want to begin with how Eliot ended his poem and then subvert it with my favorite verse from Revelation 21 about the arrival that we are anticipating. So receive this benediction. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a whimper but with the one who's seated on the throne saying, Behold, I am making all things new. Go in grace.